Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Aaron Flores, reading first for the first, well, not the first time, but first time in a long time that I've done first. <laughs> and I'm Joan Fedett. We are broadcasting from Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. We cover bicycling, trains and transit, infrastructure, adventures. And today we are joined by Micah Bishop from Neighbors for Clean Air uh, to chat about air pollution, diesel, environmental justice, just transitions, all sorts of good stuff. Yeah, it got heavy. It gets a little heavy. It got, it got a little bit of heavy, heavy air, but uh, it's it's a good talk, and it's it's stuff we all should know. Yeah, we're all, well, uh, yeah. Maybe maybe don't listen to this one in the depths of <laughs> despair <laughs> by yourself. Well, listen to this one and then and then immediately go back to the interview with Cassie where we talk about like, you know, some of the 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 ways you you can psychologically deal with a a disaster and and impending doom. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, listen to Cassie so we can spin it around and then actually go and listen to that pedal palooza ride one because that's just full of fun and energy it's like 20 minutes of like joy joyous joyousness joyfulness no talk of anything heavy over there we're just we're just enjoying the best that life has to offer and (laughs) and and not paying attention to the fact that the world may be ending around us oh why do i keep coming back to this there were many irreverent conversations in that episode. <laughs> All right. Well, we should, uh, we let's, should. Let's, let's go to let's, that interview. Uh, yeah. Welcome, Micah. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Micah Bishop. I use he, him pronouns. I'm 23. I'm here today to talk about uh, my organization, Neighbors for Clean Air. I'm a white trans activist in Portland, Oregon, and I super appreciate everybody who rides a bike. But I think mostly today I'm going to be talking about uh, diesel. And I'm really excited, honestly. I've been in the field for a little bit, and this is my first podcast. Oh, nice. Ooh, that's great. Yeah. Well, um... So, Micah, I met you, gosh, maybe a month ago at this point at one of the Sunrise PDX, uh, like, protests at ODA. And Chris Smith, who has been on the podcast, gosh, bunches of time, introduced you and I. So, I think you've been involved uh, with uh, Sunrise. And then you are also working for Neighbors for Clean Air. And you did mention your passion for diesel. So, let's just... Can you go ahead and, and just tell us about the work that you're doing, either, you know, volunteer and your like job stuff and, and tell us, I mean, Diesel, tell, tell us, tell us what we should know. Sure. Well, I'm very, very grateful to the Sunrise Movement and they're giving an excellent platform for, you know, young people, teenagers and young adults to get involved with deeper climate advocacy and you know, ways to invest in infrastructure that actually works, period. When infrastructure that works, that is regenerative, that is sustainable, that is not exploitative. With Sunrise, there's we've done a lot of transportation work in Portland. And so Youth versus ODOT, you know, is against the Oregon Department of Transportation, kind of calling them out for the work that they're doing, expanding or working on seven highway projects currently, and also mismanaging forest practices, uh, hazarded logging, and clear-cutting massive amounts of forest land, the state-owned forest land. Yeah, with Neighbors for Clean Air, I work in a couple of different a couple different areas. My, my title is community engagement coordinator and community engagement 
is something that has to be done by non-government entities. People talking to other people, people talking to industry, and people talking to government, those are all conversations that just haven't been happening lately, frankly. We have to be much more intentional about who we're, who is in conversation with who. And oftentimes when I go into a neighborhood association meeting or into a meeting with, you know, parents and teachers and elders, I say, do you know that Multnomah County is in the top five of counties across the U.S. with the worst air pollution, with the highest rates of particulate matter? And a lot of people have the same face that Aaron has on right now. <laughs> um, my eyebrows almost it, disappeared into my hairline there. Yeah. Yeah. Portland, the Portland metro area has an incredibly high air toxin level. Our standards, Oregon's standards as a state are 30% greater than California or Washington. And, you know, at first glance, the state has created a very green image of itself. You know, it seems that our air regulation would be a success. There's so many trees here, right? But Clackamas, Multnomah, and Washington counties are in the top five of diesel pollution out of 3,000 counties in the nation. And in Portland, more than 14 carcinogenic air toxins exceed state benchmarks. And we already said, right, that those state benchmarks are higher than California or Washington. So it's, it's, easy, it's easier to reach them. Air quality around many Portland schools have been ranked in the bottom 2% in the nation. And this is due to industrial heavy metal air pollution and proximity of transportation routes. And at the same time, rural communities are suffering from hazardous levels of wood smoke and diesel pollution from agricultural and logging operations. So, you know, these are all really heavy words. It's really heavy information. And it's hard for people to kind of distance the understanding that they have, you know, the love that they have for uh, the hiking that we're able to do and, you know, walking to parks and connecting that with the absolute violence that our infrastructure creates and the ways that glass facilities and off-road construction equipment continue to poison us. Like there are a lot of health, health impacts and there are a lot of ways that this particular issue too is along the same line of environmental injustice, you know, connected to racial injustice. The conversation currently re revolves around when we're talking about air pollution, we are also talking about housing and displacement. And we're also talking about place-based environmental violence and there's a statistic I'm looking for right now. Oh, here it is. Portland State University, Professor Dr. Vivek Shandis did a, did a study, and he found that 38% of Portland's non-white population, of the BIPOC population, live next to an industrial polluter, and that's compared to 33% of white people. But we also know that white people make up, like, over 70% of the demographic here. And so... One majority non-white area in North Portland is exposed to diesel pollution concentrations that are 20 times the state health benchmarks. So it just, it just continues. Like I, there are many, many things that I can regurgitate to kind of emphasize how important this issue is. But what it really comes down to is like, we all got to breathe, right? <laughs> we, we all got to breathe. Right. Because when, when you're talking about environmental justice, right, this is, this can go in a couple different directions, right? Like one is what, where are these uh, places built, where are highways built? And those typically tend to be through poorer neighborhoods, right? Neighborhoods where a lot of people of color live. And then also where can poorer people afford to live is sometimes in less desirable places and so it becomes but wow these numbers i mean i knew some of this and yet it's still staggering to hear it all so can you talk about right so can you talk a little bit more again about the sources of diesel pollution in particular because i think a lot of us think about uh like trucks right like big 
commercial vehicles, but that's not, I mean, and I know that's a big source, but, but there's some other sources too. So like in the rural areas, is that also from vehicles or what are the other sources, both in, in urban and rural areas? Cause even though we're talking about Oregon, this stuff is everywhere. Yeah. One thing I'll say too, touching on something you said is it's not just where and who, but I really love thinking about when, when these highways were built, when these industries came in, because it was very recently and there was a very common myth that these things existed for a long time. When in actuality, you know, my grandmother remembers the placement of a highway. I was talking to a friend of mine who's 62 and he says, I remember when my parents' land was stolen in Albina. And so these things are very recent. In regards to your question, some of the biggest air pollution issues in Oregon stem from indirect sources. Uh, that includes construction and shipping and rail. That makes up like 65% of our carbon emissions. And so those are actually things that are normally outside of people's everyday contact unless they work in those fields. And so, you know, yeah, we're imagining big highways coming down and that definitely plays a part. But there's new technology that can dramatically decrease fuel pollution. There's cleaner burning trucks that are being through handled through legislation. We know that rail is in the hands of the federal government. And so it feels like there's not a lot we can do there. That's federal policy. But when it comes to construction and off-road equipment, you know, as they're cracking down on regulation in California and in Washington, they are selling their dirty burning cars here, the trucks, the equipment. Um, They're just popping them up here. And so we've actually seen our, our air quality dramatically decrease in the last years since those have been established. The Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. And... It established six key pollutants that set limits. Like those were carbon monoxide, lead, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, particulate matter 2.5 and particulate matter 10, and then sulfur dioxide. That does not include wood burning. And we saw, right, how, how much just having unmitigated wildfires, unmanaged wildfires, like had a serious health impact, not just on the people who lost their homes, but also anyone who is in the vicinity of the state. Like people in Oregon are impacted by by fires that are burning in Idaho and vice versa, depending on which way the wind blows. But also commercial wood burning, people who are burning like large, large amounts of wood on their properties, there's no regulations for that either. Yeah, there are exceptions that are granted to families who use wood burning as their primary heating method. Like that's something I want to talk about today too, is like individual versus industry, like carbon impact. But uh, the main thing is just that like with the policies we have in place, the coverage is so far from complete. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying is that when, if we have less stringent rules than nearby states, then they're going to, then we become a market for things that don't past the regulations in those states, right? So then that's going to make it even worse here. So Absolutely. that's bad. Yeah, that's, that's not good. Yeah, yeah. And it's really easy to track that as well. Right, right. It's not like, right, right. That's super right. Because you're talking about things where sales are going to be recorded and such at the state. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, so, so it sounds like what you're saying is at the very least, we need to have comparable sort of regulations and laws around these things, at least as strict as neighboring states. I mean, is that a starting point? Yeah, I would say that would, that would be a great place to start, but unfortunately we have to go a few steps back. And that's the role of my organization is to collect data that supports that argument to say, hey, we are being poisoned by the fact that we have regulations that are not working, regulations, right, that continue to put the lives of people in jeopardy, um, and that the pollution sources, both indirect and 
direct, like the levels of regulation that they have are vary. Um, so one of the main things we do is work with a company called Purple Air who establishes low cost air monitor sensors. People can buy them for themselves. You know, if they have $250 of disposable income, put them up on their property with access to Wi-Fi. So Neighbors for Clean Air has been purchasing and leasing air monitors in areas where people might not have that extra $250, which is also areas that are disproportionately more likely to be close to an air pollution facility. Like the maps all line up where air is not being monitored and where air is more likely to be poisonous. So there's an intentional effort that has to happen for policy to match the need and match the gravity of this situation. And it's kind of frustrating to be honest, to do to be doing this work now when the impacts were already settling, settling in. But you know, there's a lot of other great organizations that are working alongside us to continue to get this data and also to equip the everyday person with the information they need to advocate for themselves and for their neighbors. That's great. I didn't know. So I became familiar with Purple Air, like I suspect a lot of other folks in Portland a year ago in September, when uh, we had all the uh, fires and this, the air was just so bad up here. And the numbers were just astounding. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And I didn't realize though, that's fantastic that you all are actually getting some of those sensors into communities where there aren't any and where there aren't people, because yeah, some people are buying these things themselves. Um, but getting them into places, you know, in the commercial areas, uh, near interstates that gives us a lot of information. I was just thinking about that because we had, you know, over the past weekend, uh, with 84, Highway 84 being closed in a little small part of Portland for the installation of a new bridge, I was wondering if that actually affected the quality of air right around that area. And I, I wish I had thought to go and look at it. But of course, I know there are other things in the air that do. But Purple Air is such a great resource to like go and look and you can see. I mean, I have some near near my neighborhood that I think individuals or maybe you all have put here. Yeah. I mean, for me, like as someone just getting into activism and not taking wins for granted, like putting up air monitors has been a lot of instant gratification because, you know, there were none east of 82nd when I got hired in April. And now we've set up seven of the 10 that are on that side of the map. And same thing, there were none in St. John's Cathedral Park and in Lentz, Lentz particularly, um, there was none. And now there are at least five and we're continuing the expansion into Cully, like where there was that tire fire a few years back. And so it's just one way to gather resources and data and then for people who are part of our network, we are, um, we've hired on some student scientists from Reed and they're creating a data communication tool where we can understand like on this day, did construction spike and they can look back. We don't have that released yet, but we're working on that to be released in a few months. But I can tell you like construction leads to a significant rise in localized pollution, whether it's like a large development or a neighbor's small home improvement project the majority of construction equipment produces dangerous pollution, especially during construction activity, but also afterwards it, it lingers. And I'd like to plug another tool here that Neighbors for Clean Air created in partnership with Metro, which is called whatsinourair.org. And What's In Our Air is a mapping tool that shows construction happening in your area, low, medium, and high impact construction. You can see the permits that have been taken out and you can see what's like right next to you. And it has, you know, varying degrees of like the scope that you can see, but it's a really amazing map to use in relationship with the purple air map, because if there is a spike in your area, you can go on what's in our air and you can see, okay, what could be going on around me that I'm not seeing, right? Where is the construction happening? Is it a neighbor's pool? Is it, you know, they're retarring a road. 
where is this equipment that is, you know, creating a spike in the 2.5 diesel particulate matter that the monitor can pick up. So this is great. So I didn't know, I knew about purple air, as I said, for the past year, but this is, I'm just looking at this Right now, I mean, I I think I will be like horrified by the information that I <laughs> learned from it, but like it will be much more specific than just knowing the air is bad. I will be able to see what in particular. This is great. This is such a great tool. I will link to all of this stuff in the show notes for for folks who are who are interested. Um, Micah, can you talk a little bit about? I think that. Um, you know, sometimes folks who ride bikes a lot, not always, but sometimes folks who ride, ride bikes a lot tend to be uh, more active, healthier people. And sometimes, you know, that means we are extra sensitive to the air or sometimes that means maybe people are a bit blasé about it. Uh, like, oh, well, I'm fine. So this stuff isn't going to affect me, except that, you know, this isn't good for any of us, but there are particularly some people who are at risk. And I think kids are one of the groups, right? Anybody who's doing, spending a lot of time outside exercising, maybe older folks. Can you talk a little bit about some of the impacts of, of these things on our health? So it's not just, you know, yeah. Like, like what does this stuff actually do to us when we breathe it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I also ride my bike. I have a commitment to never own a car. I made that commitment when I moved here to go to college. And I got a motorcycle instead, which makes me very cool. I ride around with a little air monitor in my back pocket and put them up at people's houses feeling like a professional punk. And I will say, like, you know, it it is amazing how, like, there is a direct communicate community. There is direct community linkage between people who ride bikes and people who are, you know, likely to be in the transportation like realm, like advocates for one thing or another, but I'll also say like greenways, the way they're built have an effect where they're built have an effect. And so I think that we really need to examine like how our infrastructure is coming into play in order for us to like have a more holistic understanding of like the impact that biking does have, because there are ways, you know, if, it, if we use the same system to create biking infrastructure that we have used to create the rest of the transportation infrastructure, we'll continue to repeat a cycle that is unhealthy. In response to your question, you're right. It's children and it's elders that suffer particularly, um, as well as people with predispositions or, um, you know, lung problems. For children, air pollution can cause reduced lung development. It can also cause asthma. And combining the exposures that are faced by people of color communities, like communities that are like culturally specific or immigrant communities, it poses a higher risk. And it also means that their children are among the more severely harmed by poor air quality. I mean, there are a lot of things that are tied to the health. It's it's heart issues, it's lung issues, it's respiratory, also cancer but depending on what pollutant you're near on that what's in our air tool, it also has a lot of information about the specific impacts that it can have on, on you and on your family. Yeah, I'd also like to mention too that like outside of the Portland metro area, agricultural workforces, which are like pr primarily Latinx, they've been consistently exposed to wildfire smoke and hazardous pesticides and only recently have guidelines been put in place to offer workplace protections. And so that's like a totally, you know, additional realm of like what pollutants are entering our bodies. We won't know what health impacts they have until the research is done. And by the time the research is done, it's too late. Like we just need to stop these things where they are. We just need to say, don't, don't pump things into our air that you know are going to make us sick. We don't have to, we shouldn't have to prove that people are getting sick in order for you to stop because we've known this for a really long time, right? In the 1970s, ExxonMobil knew the impact that fossil fuel would have on the planet. Scientists were already telling them that. And now a lot of organizations and citizen scientists, particular, particularly people who are taking it upon themselves to do this research, have to say like, hey, 50 years ago, because you didn't do this, this is what we're suffering from now. And for some reason, we have to prove that you should stop. 
Um, I'm getting rather worked up, so I, I think I'll take a breath. Right on. Well, I, <laughs> I was, um, what I was going to say, you were talking about earlier about how so much of, of the worst stuff is relatively recent. And I've just been thinking about that recently. I'm actually, I'm taking, there's a, a class offered through the Portland Bureau of Transportation on traffic and transportation. I'm taking that right now. And I've just been uh, watching videos on and reading some about um, Portland's transportation history. And it really has been, I mean, I know this, but you know, you and Aaron and I like, in the interstate highways have been part of our whole life, right? Like we have only lived in a world with these huge interstate systems, but that's not true of my dad, for example. He's in his early 80s. I mean, I don't know how much he remembers before that, but it's not like this stuff is like, it's not natural just because it's just because it's always been around in our lives. It's like, it was, it was really watching this stuff and thinking about it. It's like, it's like we just did so much so quickly and we definitely could have made some very different choices not that long ago. I mean, and it wasn't, it didn't take very long for people to really start objecting to some of the highways and, and yet we're still in the same problem where people seem to think, you know, we'll just one more lane. That's what's going <laughs> to fix it. And it's like, no, traffic is it's like traffic is never going to get better. And the, or, or the, and the idea that it can, it's just this, or that somehow we're entitled to get quickly, you know, 10 miles across the city to, for whatever reason, it doesn't even matter, you know, anyway, it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's recent. It's new, even though for folks listening, it's been part of our lives, but you know, this stuff is, even if we talk about the old interstate system or crumbling infrastructure, it wasn't built that long ago, you know. So, Micah, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, in our email, you were talking a little bit about uh, frontline community and just transitions. And you shared with me a website for the Oregon Just Transition Alliance. Can you talk a little bit about that? I will also link to that in our show notes, but can you talk a little bit about um, just transitions? It's, it's really interesting. It, it's, it really resonates with me. And I, I would like, it would be great if you could explain that a little bit for folks. Sure. The, the framework of a just transition is basically what's brought me to this point today. It's what keeps me in activism and like makes me believe that there is a future that we can see that's different. The core principles of it are based in a humanitarian approach to creating infrastructure, community, finance, food, like all of the core tenets of our life in a way that is regenerative, in a way that honors ecological and social well-being. Um, this, it's a strategy framework that resists the extractive economy, rethinks our power dynamics, and restructures us towards what's called the living economy. So, you know, going back to the example that you named of the interstate highway, it was, it was extractive. And its purpose was to divide. It was built in 1951 after there was a large immigration of Black neighborhood members from the Vanport flood in 1948. And the Albina neighborhood was just like teeming with people. And they built that highway down the middle, took the land, knocked over over a thousand homes and then said that it was blighted and that it became dangerous conditions. And so it's not people that it's not just that people have been, you know, protesting the highway because they realized what an impact it had, but like the process of the highway being built was unjust, was intentionally like dismantled a thriving cultural heart for community members that couldn't live anywhere else in Oregon. Um, the, the way that, you know, we can approach that now, you know, approach transportation now is like, how do we make resources regenerative? And I think actually, you know, we could look at bikes for this. People who own bikes 
know how to fix their bike. And if they don't know how to fix their bike, they know how to get the part. And honestly, I find that my, my friends and my comrades with cars, like it's, um, it's more difficult for us to not this. I'm making a generalization of my community, um, that we don't know how to manage our own cars that they're like basically foreign vehicles and you have to hire somebody else to help you. Um, that is, that is the key to unsustainability is not knowing how to fix it yourself, not knowing how to grow it, how to build it, um, yourself or with the tools of someone in your community. Um, by, by frontline communities, that is, you know, following the leadership of people who are immediately impacted by the issues. We teach a lot in climate change with like, who are the coastal communities? Who are the tribal communities that are being impacted by things like, you know, water issues um, that, that would, you know, just to name a few, Flint, Michigan comes to mind and Warm Springs comes to mind. If we really wanted to, you know, face the issue of water justice head on, you have to go to those communities first that have been experiencing water crisis lead in their water for years and actually address you know, what they say they need and the ways that they believe that their water system should exist, not just coming in with like a new solution, right? It's deeply listening. It's honoring the sacredness of, you know, people's living experience. It's self-determination, self-determination for communities that are feeling the impacts of global, ecological, economic, and imperialistic crises. A just transition shifts power and shifts resources. It breaks the current structure of powers and like the new economy needs to be about sustainable resources. My friends and I do not anticipate living well in this world, but that's what the vision of a just transition, that's one of the tenants too. It creates buen vivir, it creates living well. We know that everything we have will break. It was designed to break. And we can, we can shift that so that our resources are also sustainable so that the things that we encounter every day we can actually take care of a just transition must have regenerative ecological effects as well we have to stop extraction of finite natural resources exploitation of labor and dismissal of cultures and traditions and advance ecological resilience and restoration building rather than destroying and i'll say right now like i am reading this off of the oregon just transition alliance website you can look up everything that I'm saying right now. These are not my ideas. These are ideas that were created and crafted specifically for people to understand the way to move through this critical moment. We are in a, we are in a critical moment and we have been for the past 50 years, the whole time that all of these issues that we're talking about today have been happening, we have been in a critical moment and we'll be in a critical moment for the next 50 years. Like we are at a time when things are constantly shifting and changing. And so we have to shift and change our understanding of how we live, the way we participate in our ecosystem in the same way. And so I'll kind of stop there. There's about five more points, including self-determination again, um, preserving ancestral wisdom and culture and centering community resilience and collaboration, um, as well as international solidarity and this is a framework that I that I carry with me and revisit on a weekly basis. And the Oregon Just Transition Alliance is one of the few organizations that I've seen that actually like implement this into their work, into their community work. They passed three of the strongest pieces of environmental legislation in the earlier session, in the past session that just happened because they had a coalition that was led by frontline community members across the state of Oregon. They made an intentional choice to create multiracial, multicultural organizing spaces where you know people were facing the same issues but coming from different philosophies and different cultural understandings. And because of that, because of the approach that they made and the intentionality of who they were interacting with, I believe that's why those bills passed was because they were bringing this up to the legislature and they said so many different people are on the same page. What are you going to do about it? Ooh, woo I get so worked up about this stuff. I, I love talking about a just transition. I love it. I want to shout out Anissa Pemberton from the Coalition of Communities of Color for teaching me that. Um, they're awesome. Um, and yeah, we'll link. Yeah. 
I'll link, I'll link to the coalition of communities of color too. Yeah. There's lots of, lots of uh, good things that you've shared and I'll, I'll put it all in the, I'll put it all in the show notes so that all this stuff so that people can get to it real easily. A lot of good resources that are not just Oregon specific at all. They apply to all of these things in many places. So. Right. This is, this is just our, you know, version of the issues that everyone is facing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us. What, what else would you like to share with people? Um, well, in our last minutes, I'd love to pick Aaron's brain because he's been listening so, uh, so rapidly. <laughs> oh. so closely. And uh, I'll also say our Facebook is a good place to reach us, our Instagram. It's just Neighbors for Clean Air. Uh, that's F-O-R. Our website, we have a lot more resources on there, um, including some videos. We're releasing a clean air handbook now that has a lot of the information that I said like earlier, that'll be coming out uh, probably before the end of the year. Um, And it's just another tool for people to, you know, equip themselves with, with facts and, you know, the hard data for, to be an air advocate, you know, to say, I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Cause you know, my my coworker Kristen makes me sound real smart because uh, she's a she's a teacher at um, Portland State who teaches you know the history of white supremacy in Oregon and so that is always in relationship to the work that we're doing and I would say if there's anything you can pull away um, it would be to do your own research on the way that you know environmental justice is directly linked to who is in place. Um, and who is in power in place. Um, And then we can begin to dissect our own understandings of the way that our world works. I have a website, but if you want to reach me, my email, um, I don't, I don't know. Do you, do, do I say my email out loud? (laughs) Uh, If folks want to, I mean, if folks want to get in touch with you, they can, they can get in touch with us and I can, we can forward that along if, if they, if they want. So you don't need to, I mean, they can find you through these various organizations. If you have a social media presence that you want to share, or you can share this, you know, professional stuff with this other organization. So that's totally fine. So thanks. Yeah. Aaron, did you want to chime in with something here? Um, I just, honestly, my mind is blown about the quality of air. I'm still, I'm still thinking like, like you came out in the first, uh, 10 minutes, just swinging hard about Oregon's air quality. And yeah, I got a, I got a lot to learn. I appreciate you bringing this out, but also like just thinking how maybe I, I let myself be a little bit apathetic towards something like air quality because I've taken for granted that, oh yeah, Oregon's so green. And I, I live just, you know, just a bike ride away from a nice forest and, and forests have good air quality. So, and Oregon's full of forests. And, and so, you know, I can't, I can't believe like we're lagging behind California in all honesty, to shout out or not to not necessarily to to shame California so much is just just finding it how very surprising about that. Yeah, it's hard to say and it's hard to hear because it's a narrative that Oregon has fed itself that we're the pinnacle of the Northwest right. and it's just not it's just not true and it's really it's really hard because we all you know being from here we all love it so much and grew up here and these issues are not going to go away they're only going to get worse unfortunately so i'm very very grateful for the opportunity to share some truth today with a group of people and i hope that the resources that i did give are useful for people to continue to do their own their own research and their own advocacy yeah and i think that the kind of people who listen to us are folks who even if don't have all of this information have come to a similar solution, right? Even if they're different problems they're trying to solve. So, you know, being on our bikes is a, is a, is a great way at least to not make all this worse, <laughs> you know, as we try to figure out what we can, what we can be doing to yeah. make things a little bit better. So thank you so much for your time yeah, and your energy and passion and work and, and thank all you. that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Yeah, I am really grateful to uh, the youth in the Sunrise Movement PDX who have done an extraordinary job educating themselves and are just hammering oh, this stuff home all the time. Freaking Gen Xers. We're, we're a bunch of Gen- we're a bunch of apathetic <laughs> lazy cusses. <laughs> I like to think that we're the parents of Gen Z. Yeah. But yeah. You know, that's the only way, like, can, like, can we ride their glory? But, you know, one thing that <laughs> Ada uh, said when she joined us a few months ago, and then I saw, so uh, two of our recent podcast guests, um, Cassie Wilson, and then uh, Ada were on a, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. They were on like a news program uh, over the weekend. Oh, cool. and And it was like a 20 minute interview. And, and Ada said, you know, um, don't just thank us for, for what we're doing, like actually do something. Right. You know, right. So I, uh, you know, and, and riding our bikes, that's, that's one thing, but you know, there's, that's a good, that's a good starting point. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. Hearing that this County has what was it? Some of the top five worst diesel pollution in the country. Yeah. How about that? Huh? Yeah. And you and I do not live far from interstates, you know? Uh, so I can't imagine that our air is, I mean, it's gotta be some, it's not good. No, it's not good. It's not good. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned the, the uh, the I-84 closure. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, you wondered what the impact was on air quality. I honestly think it made air quality worse around, like, the neighborhood streets. Because? Because, you know, the way the way I-84 is situated, and for better or for worse, it's down in this, well, in this natural gulch, right? And not that air just settles down in there, but... I imagine like it kind of like a wind tunnel just stays in that tube. I'm probably wrong. I'm not a scientist, but it's not like the traffic pattern changed at all. It just moved. Yeah. I mean, there may be a few folks who, who put off errands or something because they heard about the closure. Right. right? But but most people still did what they needed to go. Sure. They just drove a different direction. Sure. And instead of going on the highway, they went through the neighborhood. Right. Well, so, I mean, as a parallel to that is uh, gas prices are at their highest than they've been in, in a long hmm. time and consumption still going up. Mm-hmm. It's not the price is not curbed or the inconvenience has not curbed the consumption at all. I, uh, just since we just had a super uplifting conversation about <laughs> diesel, yeah. let me just go ahead and, and say the even, I just have, I, over the last few days, I've just sometimes lots of things weren't good for many people before the pandemic, but if sometimes it, it feels like something has just really broken and um, like, I'm just thinking of things about how, you know, we're seeing more, traffic more car traffic than before the pandemic but yet it's more dangerous like people started driving faster when roads were empty and now that they're busier again they're still driving faster right and they're driving in more dangerous ways and there are more accidents and it just uh feels like uh any any sort of illusion of well the illusions of have cleared right and there's just yeah like things have become a lot clearer like the problems and it's a lot harder to see the solutions so yeah that's 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 pretty heavy (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we're glad people listen to us for a nice little light bike related distraction from their otherwise stressful lives yeah (laughs) I'm I'm glad there's people like Micah out there that can uh, kind of put a spotlight on at least like one aspect of this, and you know, I 
I can knowledge is power. I can use that power to to hopefully better those around me, hopefully. I mean, you know, sh- shoot. Oh, no. I I was like kind of looking to order a uh what is it? An air quality monitor as as Michael mm-hmm. was talking. Mhm. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, I know those are great. Yeah, I have a friend who has one mm-hmm. uh on their house and it's it's great to, you know, they can so so they know like not just not just how the air is in the neighborhood but like at their house. Yeah. <laughs> they can specifically check. So that's pretty cool. Oh, and I think they have one inside too, right? So they can also keep keep up with how the air is. You know, Micah said something that was really interesting that I hadn't actually thought about before. I mean, I don't know how to fix a ton of stuff on my bike. I can do some basic little things, but I can certainly do more. I do have a car and I can uh-huh. certainly do more on my bike than my car. But if my bike broke versus my car breaking, if my bike broke, I could probably find a hundred people in the city that I know <laughs> who would understand like maybe what had happened to it and how right. it could fix it. And I'm not even talking about it, a bike shop, right? I'm just talking about like in my neighborhood or just people that I know, whereas if my car broke, like oh. I'm definitely, that was really interesting. Like who... I mean, maybe, you know, like you, you have one friend who's a car person. <laughs> you should, you should do an experiment. No, this is a terrible experiment, but we should, we should at least talk about this experiment that we're not going to do. And that is throw up on the social media, like a fake problem that you're having with your bike and just see how, how many, how quickly like come back with a, with a solution for you and then throw a, a problem about your car. And then see again, like compare that. How many? How quickly have a have a solution for you? Um, I have worked on cars before. I know like a few car maintenance uh, uh, basics, but and this is maybe a little off track. Cars these days aren't built to be worked on for anybody. Um, you have to take them in. That's that's partially by design. Um, that's true with so many things. What is it like planned obsolescence? And there's a, um, there's movements like basically that they're building things. They like manufacturers are, I'll dig up a link for this too. This isn't just like a conspiracy theory, but manufacturers build things to break such that the repair is almost as expensive as oh, yeah. getting a new one. I mean, right? that's, so that's the old like model A's or model T's. Um, yeah. Right. So it used to be that if you had a dishwasher and you know, from the seventies, I don't know, it might run for 40 years and now you get one and it, it'll break after five or 10 and um, you know, it's so expensive that then, so, so we're just creating, so there's like a movement called the right to repair movement yes. or something, or trying to make so it harder for that manufacturers to not basically sell you the things you need to fix the stuff that they built to break, you know? And that was, I don't know if it was started, but a lot of it is centered around, uh, farmers and their heavy hmm. machinery. Cause a lot of newer heavy machinery they're made in such a way that even if you were to work on it or to put like your own uh, fabricated part on it, it the whole thing locks up. It stops working um, because you violated like the terms of service, so to speak. Uh, you know how like you have to sign like a certain terms of service for, you know, to, to get iTunes, right? It's, it's essentially like that mm. uh, for, uh, for heavy machinery. Um, it's, it's very interesting. I saw this special on it about specifically about John Deere's um, tractors being designed in, in that way. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, there's actually some been some recent legislation or an executive order. So maybe that's why it's been oh, in the cool. air. So uh, yeah. And it actually does, it does have to do with farming equipment. So I will, I will share that. It says, why right to repair matters according to a farmer, a medical worker, a computer store owner. And this is from Ooh. the guardian August 2nd. So I will, um, that's pretty recent. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to that. Yeah. So being able to repair our stuff, isn't just a matter of being like, you know, 
I mean, you know, it would be nice to like, I don't know, just think about how often phones, even if you're not into the latest stuff, sometimes it just doesn't even last very long. You know, even if it's, even if you're not like some people always want to chase the new tech, but like, I'm not somebody who does. And yet, you know, sometimes, yeah, these things, it's not that they're not built like they used to be. They're specifically built so that we have to buy them. And then now when we're having all these supply chain problems and you can't get something, it's like even worse. Yeah. Cause you can't even, you can't replace it. You can't fix it. See, it's all falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> but you know we have a nice well we're gonna have a nice new bike bridge soon so that's something yeah hopefully in time for the last day of school year school ride that's what i mean Ooh. last day of school ride yeah so by mid-june that's a good question that's a good question stay tuned we will we will that would be that would be fun yeah go over that bridge The Sprocket Podcast is produced in Portland, Oregon. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and tell your friends about us. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurtbird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Cameron Lean. Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn Kubish. Eric Wise, Doug Cohen-Miller, Chris Smith. Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt. Marco Lowe, Rich Outerstrom, Drew the Welder. Anna. She'll be home soon. Andre Johnson, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Regrainery. Campsite, Macnurs David, Jeremy Kitchen. David Belay, Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel. EJ Finneran, Brad Hipwell, Tom Mosquedow. Keith Hutchinson, Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson. Ryan Tam, Jason Oftenberg, David Moore, Todd Grossbeck. Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite. Dude Luna, Emma Rooks. Caca! Caca! Philip M. Spartandale, Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative, Keweenaw. Sarah G, Adam D, Go Dig a Hole, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso, Isaac M. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G, Rachel Moline. Jimmy Diesel, Christopher Barnett, Jonathan Lee. And our newest sponsor, Hami Ramani. Thanks, Hami. Yeah, wow. And yeah. And thanks to all our former supporters who helped us along the way. Now, brush your teeth. And uh, write your legislatures to fix this air stuff. Fix and also the go to goddamn bed. air. <laughs> <laughs>